On this week's episode, we welcome a special guest panel. The many things that we do in this media space, um, one of the things that really I have such a passion for is education. You know, whether it's traveling around the country to the different states where education is really in crisis, whether that's Rochester, Michigan, um, Baltimore, right up the street, right here in D.C. and Prince and Loudoun County, education is such an important issue. And you know, I don't know how much you know about Project Baltimore and what Chris Paps and others do in terms of bringing to light the educational um, discrepancies and deficiencies and holding school board members and educators accountable. Because I have to tell you, education is truly the passport. Kids need to understand what it means to go to that classroom and have a shot at whatever you define as the American dream. And so many kids today graduate from high school, cannot read, cannot write. You know, when I was growing up, I could not even imagine that being the case. And so on today's edition, for the full hour, we're just going to talk about what I consider to be one of the most important issues of the day. Not only the crisis in the classroom, but the crisis in education. And we've assembled a stellar panel to join us today. Marcia Dyson, uh, who's an entrepreneur, is joining us inside the broadcast house today. And we Welcome her, Walter Milton, BCH365, is joining us. There he is. And Ian Joe Nathan, Director of Center for School Change, is joining us. And Corey Walker, commentator, is also back with us. And we're going to talk about education. But, you know, I want to start with, you know, President Biden and his political maneuver promised $20,000 write-off of student debt. All of a sudden, it seems as though the dynamics have changed for the Federal Family Foundation mm -hmm. and for the Perkins loans. If you go to their website, in a very subtle way, that's no longer the, um, what it was before. Those who actually think they're going to be able to write off their debt, that's not the case anymore because a lot of these GOP-led states are suing. And the Biden administration, the Department of Education, has responded. Let me start with you. Walter Milton, what is the status of this student loan debt relief? Well, um, I've been I've been listening to it, and it just seemed like uh, there's a high probability of uh, various forms of inconsistencies in terms of articulating uh, what it means. I think both sides have not come to um, full agreement with it, but I also think that. Um, if we look at how taxing this will be on, on the, you know, the American citizens, I think that that's where the under uh, root of this whole thing really lies. I don't think that I don't think that it was really examined. It wasn't uh, thought out. It seemed like it was um, an emotional um, decision that was made off the cuff. And I think that as a result of that, it can have major, major um, impact on the society and just make the division even even greater that we have. But Joe Nathan, who actually gets the benefit from the president's declaration on the student loan debt relief? So it varies, but it's it's um, students who have taken out federal loans 
and are um, in the process of paying them back. Um, the majority of the debt is owned by is owed by low-income people, people of color. Um, but there's also been a discussion about um, ensuring that the money, substantial amounts of money, don't go to people who are very wealthy. So there has been some limit put on the income level that people can have and still get some of the money. So there, some of the voices, such as yours, I think, and mine, which said, let's just not open this up to everybody, um, were heard. And I think that that was a positive step. So it's not going to the, the most wealthy people. It's going to low and moderate income families. Court Walker, um, could this have been um, um, uh, unveiled in a better way where the Biden administration could also accomplish its short-term goal, but not also, but not to give kids false hope. And you have all these kids believing that they're gonna be able to write off their student debt. And that's just not the case. Yeah, I think that the Biden administration, as, as said here before, um, rolled this out in a way that was pretty emotional, um, but also wasn't necessarily uh, planned correctly. Um, I think most people that have been paying attention to this could say that it wasn't necessarily done um, in the most um, thorough way, right? So you gave a lot of, I mean, if you're going to do this, you have to, you have to understand that like it's controversial, particularly among the right. So therefore you have to be very thorough in the policies that you create to try to, try to create a safeguard um, against um, the right in, you know, interfering or trying to strike it down. Biden administration didn't do this. It almost is, is like they announced this for the sake of maybe getting um, a poll bump or maybe they announced it because he was like in the middle of a you know long streak of policy wins and he wanted to stick their notch in his belt. But I think unfortunately, because of the fact they didn't do their due diligence and trying to um, make it to safeguard it against right-wing attacks, it does seem that a large segment of our youth um, are, are, are being fed false hope because a lot of people are not gonna be able to wrap their student loans. And quite frankly, since you know they're trying to sue this as Supreme Court, it's, it's, it's on very tenuous grounds. We don't know if this is going to stand. Marcia? Mm -hmm. I agree. We talk about emotional intellectualism. It's also emotional politics. And it is the midterm season. So you always want to appeal to a base that have been able to take you across uh, the line during any normal voting season. And this is one of the very important midterms. So, of course, as an African-American, I would love as a former educator to know that these student loans can be eradicated, which most students would think that their total loan would be eradicated, and that's not the truth. But when I also looked at some of the other media platforms, when you go out in the street and you ask people who are citizens, do they want to tote this bill? And they're saying, like, wait a minute, I just thought it was something that we give. We have to remember that anything that the government promises is paid for by the taxpayers. 400 will, billion. 400 billion. So that's not like last time I heard manna coming from heaven was in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So this particular manna is going to come from the taxpayers. So taxpayers are saying like, wait a minute, I had to f pay the full ride of my child's education and now am I going to do this again, unfortunately, from some children that I don't know. So for me, it's a catch-22. It's a great promise, but I think it's a promise that they won't be able to uh, keep. Let me come back to um, Corey. I mean, you've been inside the classroom. You've been on mm -hmm. both sides. Why is it, not just in certain cities, but all across the country, 
And it's just not brown and black kids. You know, we were just in Maine recently, and I was stunned when I was sitting in a meeting with some of the top business people uh, in that state, and they have the same educational challenges. We like to think that it's only isolated with minority communities, but it's not. What is wrong with the classroom? What is wrong with education, Corey? Well, it's a very complicated question. Um, I think it's a controversial topic, depending on who you ask. There's some people who believe, as controversial we'll talk about genetics, that there's you know, a genetic component to it. Um, there's the idea of IQ existing and that maybe putting a cap on what kids can achieve. Then there's the question of like what schools can do. Like, are schools capable of turning students that are average or below average into you know kids that are gonna score 1550 on the SAT? I'm not confident they can. And I think that we're always looking for these magic bullets whether it's through education spending or whatever to fix these problems. Um, I think ultimately we have to kind of look at what the data tells us. And what the data tells us is that schools themselves don't really create amazing students, but the quote unquote good schools like mag magnet schools and a lot of schools in places like New York City where it's very controversial, they're trying to change the missions practices to get in. Those schools are good because they are already admitting the best students, right? They're admitting students that already scored to the 99th percentile. So if we talk about what we can do, um, I think that, you know, obviously maybe spending some more money to making sure kids, you know, obviously all their, you know, um, fundamental stuff in terms of food are taken care of, in terms of having a stable home life is taken care of, making sure that fathers are staying in their homes. These are things outside of education. Mm -hmm. But I think if you want to improve things like you know, math and reading ability, you may be better off encouraging parents to take a more active role in that. Um, you may be better off encouraging parents to, you know, read to their kids at night, um, you know, making their kids maybe read a half hour a day or an hour a day and write a book report, the old Ben Carson that day, right? Um, when I grew up, I was always two years ahead of math, the rest of my classmates, but that's because my mom had me personally doing outside of class work, our own curriculum, in which I was, if I was in fifth grade, I was doing the seventh grade math workbook, right? And so I always tested two years ahead. That's because I was actually doing that work. Um, we do know that mastery learning is better than any learning that you can get in a classroom, which goes at any pace and oftentimes leaves students behind that maybe are not as quick as what the teacher is teaching. So I think that we have to understand that the way that we teach students in classrooms is not necessarily scientifically uh, bounded in reality as, you know, in, in terms of what we know works for students. So I think we may be better off, you know, trying to empower parents more and telling and encouraging parents to take a more active role in their kids' education rather than expecting schools to be a magic bullet. Hmm. You no, know, Joe, I know, and we appreciate so much that you're joining us from the airport, so don't worry about the noise. We're just happy to have you. What would you add to what Corey just talked about? Because you're about school change. What do you feel that needs to change in the home? Sure. Well, let me let me just pick up on what, what he just said and, and go back to your first question for a moment. Um, on, the, on the student debt situation and on the family involvement, one of the best ways to involve families is to give them more choices. Here in Minnesota, we have had since 1985 a law that allows high school students starting in the 11th grade to have their money follow them. So it's a voucher. Follow them and pay the full cost of junior uh, college, uh, two-year college or four-year college or university. And so we literally have thousands of students graduating 
every year with thousands of credits. Um, they are saving, according to legislation, according to research that came out this year, um, more than $50 million a year. Now think about that. The empowerment of families means that the youngster can take all or part of her or his um, junior or senior year in high school on a college campus. And not. And sometimes students take traditional academic courses, sometimes they take more applied courses, auto repair, computer repair, whatever. But the point is that that's one form of family empowerment. And I think it's one of the things that we need to be expanding. Um, I had hoped that this administration would encourage more uh, options, more family involvement through options and, and more opportunities for youngsters to take literally college courses for free. And when you think about the college debt situation, this is a one-time infusion of enormous amounts of money Whereas in Minnesota, and also in Washington state, by the way, the dollars follow the students. So in both of our states, Minnesota and Washington, youngsters can earn up to two free years of college. And it, it's a not an additional cost to the taxpayers, it's actually a savings to the taxpayers of millions of dollars. So one form of family involvement, and one form, one thing that we think we need to do a lot more of, and frankly, some of the countries that are doing a lot better than us have much more of this, is to have more family involvement through family choice, through school choice. That's one of the things I think we need to do. You know, I must admit, I am really struck by what Corey said about his mother, that he was always not only ahead in the tough classes, whether it's math or science, he was two years ahead. His mother really prepared him for the classroom. Marcia, you founded schools, you are a teacher, you are a parent, your grandmother, you're an educator, your perspective. First of all, we have to assume that the parents have the skills themselves to teach their children. What I love about Susan Taylor's CARES Mentoring National Program is that they actually take through their uh, volunteer teachers, after school programs, work with the parents and those students to make sure that they can stay ahead of the grades uh, that they're in or they also help the parents. They have a parent's university because one thing that we know that a parent can't teach if the parent does, does not know. Her platform allows these parents to, be, uh, to learn along with their students so they can help them with their homework. And then too, we have to consider it's not just the students, it's also the teachers who have losing enthusiasm. It's also the curriculum that has nothing to do with the students to apply it to the life. And we also have uh, infra uh, infiltration of drug companies, pharmaceutical companies who are coming in and, and now I'm finding out that every other child has an attention deficit disorder. That was unheard of decades ago. But when the school boards cut their budgets, then those pharmaceutical companies have come in. They're able to augment that uh, that budget, but our students then are given drugs that they may not meet, need. They might be misdiagnosed all for the sake of school funding. So it's not just mm. the parents. We have to look at so many other things that are involved in the true education of our children. And we have to say not just education, I'm seeing inferior education, especially in public school systems. Dr. Milton, let's, let's go back to um, the books. You know, I grew up reading. I used to think, is, I mean, is this what my childhood's gonna be like? But let me tell you something. I could kiss the ground that my parents walk on and they're in their grades today. But reading was so important. I mean, I think when you walk into someone's home and you see more toys, more video games, and very few signs of books, 
That's a problem. Whether it's books, magazines, I mean, the home environment, if you listen to Corey, you look to listen to Professor Dyson, you listen to my man, Joe Nathan, it starts, the home is important and books are important. Yes, absolutely. And I was a school superintendent for uh, 14 years. And one of the things that I found was that reading has to be fundamentally first. We call it RIF. Reading is fundamentally first. And one of the things that um, I think that's that's happening in education uh, to this day, we find ourselves dealing with a population who is in a conundrum or an abyss, mm -hmm. if you will. And one of the things that we have to do, we have to have high uncompromising expectations to really pull them up and pull them in a position that they can compete globally. Because I think right now there's so many gaps when we look at literacy, when we look at math. And I think that we have to help our young people to become critical and analytical thinkers. And I think that we have to also marry uh, the community and school systems across the nation. I think we have to look at parents' perceptions and attitudes um, on schools, and we have to look at how schools really look at parents and what can we do to really bring about a lot of healing because now we're dealing with a population of parents that may not have had a good experience with, with education or, or, or school themselves. And then we have to have the ability to differentiate education and schooling. And I think that what we push is too much schooling and too little education. Mm -hmm. And uh, education is a never ending process. Like Alexander Dumas said that one's work may end one day, but one's education shall never ever end. And I think if we are going to really have um, a, a strong survival status in this nation, we have to push education and we have to challenge people. We have to do things that may out of, be out of the box. We may have to look at residential um, boarding academies across inner cities across the nation where um, students are not infiltrated with some of those things that that impact them negatively and they're rooted in um, an environment that's going to work with them holistically and developing themselves uh, cognitively cognitively and putting them in a position so that they can be less successful in the global competition let me let me just stay with you a moment because you are not only a former super, superintendent you were a very successful one. What about the uproar with trying to oust superintendents, school board members, principals now? Mm -hmm. Because parents are just not satisfied with what's happening to their children, the indoctrination, whether it's, it's in Minnesota, whether it's in Ohio, whether it's right here in Virginia, uh, someplace in New York. What, what, what about parents playing more of a critical role and their child's education. And the fact that they're, if they're not satisfied, they're gonna run for office and they're gonna oust these superintendents until they get the change they, they, feel, they feel is necessary to give their child the best chance of a quality education. I agree. I think that it, it has to be a collective responsibility, a shared responsibility. And one of the things um, that we understand when you have parents that are intimately involved with the educational process, it really uh, increases the probability of success, believe it or not, because I think accountability has to be at the center of everything. And I think our young people, they, they have a right to be in uh, environments that, that, are, that are quilted with uh, expectation of excellence and having all the accoutrements that they need to be successful, whether that's academic resources, whether that's uh, facilities that are gonna lend itself to the process of that, that, that high degree of excellence. So I welcome um, parent involvement and I think the superintendents should really have uh, parental forms that they should really go out to the neighborhoods. And I know that when I was a superintendent, I made, I made visits, I made home visits in every 
uh, large urban district that I led for 14 years. And what it did, it, it really um, developed a bridge for parents because they felt that if the top leader in this organization cares about us enough to knock on our doors, then that's sending a, a resounding message. And so um, that's what we do even today. I mean, we are in about 200 school systems with um, our textbooks and we make sure that we build um, a consensus, not only with the schools and the administrators, but also the communities at large that we're across uh, this great nation. And uh, let, me, let me go to you, Joe. What do you feel, what is it that hampers you in trying to change these classrooms to work better as a model for the students. What is it that challenges you the most? That sometimes seems simplistic. It's a simple thing to change, but yet it remains an obstacle for learning in the school system. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm having um, a little trouble hearing you. You were asking about what? What do you feel you, needs to change within the system so kids can get a quality education? Well, here are three things. I, I mentioned, so I won't go into greater detail, but we need to have more options for families, especially low and moderate income families. We have some fabulous examples, both district and charter public schools, as well as some parochial schools of doing a fabulous job. And the U.S. Department of Education recognizes these fabulous schools, gives them a blue ribbon award. But then what happens to the State Departments of Education convene meetings and say, let's learn from the most effective schools? No. Does the U.S. Department of Education convene meetings to say, let's learn from the most effective schools? District, charter, private, parochial? No. Do colleges and universities convene meetings and say, let's learn from the most effective schools? District, charter, private? No. So part of the problem is that we know unquestionably that there are some absolutely fabulous schools doing a terrific job, but we failed to learn from them. That's point number one. So we need um, concerted action, whether it's from ministers, um, rabbis, religious officials to convene meetings so that the most effective schools can be helpful to other people. So that's one thing. Second thing, we need to provide more options for families. And I've already alluded to the college and university options that we have in Minnesota where literally youngsters are earning up to two free years of education for free. That's the second. Third thing is um, that we need to have families encouraging kids who are bright and talented to go into teaching. This is a huge problem right now. Um, teaching was at one time a highly valued and a highly respected profession. It's really slipped. And we actually have a campaign going where we are encouraging youngsters and encouraging families to say to young people who are talented and care about youngsters, um, think about being a teacher. Those are three quick things. One last thing, we need to give kids hope and see that they can help make a difference in the world now. And I'm gonna just tell you a very brief story about some youngsters who successfully challenged the state government in Minnesota over the last year. State government said that they were not due some money that was uh, allocated by the federal government because they've been laid off. State government said no. Students did some research, did a lot of research and discovered that there was a federal law that said that if you've been laid off and you're not eligible for state money, you're eligible for federal money. The state government is democratic administration said, no, you're not eligible for the money. The, the students turned to the attorney general in the state of Minnesota who researched it, said, students research, these are high school students, the students research is excellent and it, they're right. And so they got an attorney and they challenged the governor of Minnesota. They challenged the state department of economic development and they won. And they won $30 million for high school kids. Now, my point about this is that this is 
part of their classwork. They were using reading and writing and research skills to do something that mattered to them a lot. And we need to have more applied opportunities within the classroom for youngsters to do something that can help each other and see the value of these academic skills. Those are four things we could do right now. Well, listen, I know you've got a flight to catch and I know it's kind of noisy in the airport, but I appreciate so much you joining us uh, and your powerful experience, insights that you share with us. And we're looking forward to having you back more in the future as we talk about this crisis in education. Corey Walker, help our um, listeners understand the shoes that the kids, the kids that are actually in the classroom, that they have to walk in, what are they facing, the pressures. We always talk about it from the superintendent, the curriculum, but what about the kids? What are their challenges? Well, I mean, it's it all depends, right? Like um, there is no one size fits all uh, sort of uh, way to look at this. Um, if you're a kid in the inner city, your challenges may be, you may be struggling with a community that has violence, that is dealing with poverty. Um, and quite frankly, you know, a lot of kids I feel like are being set to sell, fail in the sense that a lot of school districts there is no expectation that the kids are going to necessarily go to college, let alone a selective college. So a lot of times the goal is to just graduate kids. And in recent decades, a lot of that has come through just essentially lowering standards to push kids over the finish lines. And a lot of cities in the United States, I mean, it's not uncommon to see a, a high school senior that can't do basic fractions which is a sad thing, but that's what happens when you're just pushing kids across the finish line, regardless of what they actually have achieved or learned. Um, and I think that's kind of the thing that kids are facing. I think lowered standards, lowered expectations. We can talk a lot about the, the resources and that's all very well and good. But I think, like I said, there's a lot of pressure put on the kids to just essentially show up, uh, do the bare minimum, um, and quite frankly, a lot of kids, and particularly kids I work with, because I've worked with kids in Detroit, I've worked with kids in inner city Los Angeles, and a lot of kids don't necessarily know what's even out there. Like you talk to a kid that lives in an affluent suburb, they know everything they need to do to get into the top colleges. It's not a question of whether, whether or not they're going to school, it's a question of how fancy the school they get into is. When you talk about kids inner city, I mean, I've talked to kids in inner city, they didn't even know that they could retake the SAT exam or the ACP exam. They thought that you'd take it once. And quite frankly, a lot of kids didn't even know it was necessary for college or that colleges cared very much about it. So I think that there's just, it's like a whole different world that these kids are living under. So I think part of it is institutional and like laying out clear expectations for students and laying out clear paths for them and understanding so they understand what they need to do to succeed. Um, part of it we've already gone to in the family, but when you have dysfunctional family units or family units that are not necessarily, the education isn't necessarily the, they may say it's a top priority, but not, may, not, may not be reflected in their actions. That's one thing. But then another thing is just the schools themselves um, don't necessarily have the highest expectations of students or not, and they're not necessarily putting students in the lane to succeed. I mean, I've, I've been at schools where the AP biology class is literally crossword puzzles. I, I share that story uh, multiple times where the, the, the class itself was crossword puzzles. And then the kids take the AP exam and they all fail. Well, it's like, well, you didn't teach them anything. And, um, but yeah, I think that's what kids are going through right now. 
Marcia, talk about the curriculum. Okay. It's, well, before I talk about the curriculum, sure. I have to share that I'm on the board of the Richard Wright Charter High School for Journalism and Media Arts, and it's on the southwest side of Washington, D.C. And these children mostly come from single-headed households, or they come in areas where the violence is deep within the community. But one thing I love about the staff members and the founder, Dr. Marco Clark, at the Richard Wright Public Charter High School, we are actively involved as board members with the parents' lives as well as the students. We make sure that we integrate them when they talk about the curriculum that they need we make sure that they're at the programs in fact we give them incentives to come to the after-school programs with the students but really what is king to me is that the students themselves are taking an active role to improve their lives they're a school of journalism so they raise monies to actually buy their own news vans to go out into the streets to interview individuals or be at events which gives them more credibility than a lot of news that we see on mainstream media and one thing for me, uh, you know, when you talk about being on a platform, whether it's a social media platform or being here on this mainstream uh, platform with Armstrong Williams, that I want them to have the ability to have freedom of speech to do their great work. So it's active engagement through school boards and the community. But again, when I look at the parents, it's really important. To, we can't just say the parents have to be more involved. If you're a single head of household, you're working. You might be taking care of younger children that need nursery schools that are closing. You might have been ostracized, not sequestered during COVID. Because all these things have impacts, especially in at-risk communities and especially with children of colors. So one thing that we do at Richard Wright Charter Public Schools, we not address. We address not only the needs of the students, but we make sure the parents have what they need to have the proper tools to educate their children. We integrate them into social events so they have a sense of social community outside of their work. And so if you have a lively parenthood, which means engaging them in that school system or that particular school, then that's the likelihood of them being better parents and being more involved in their students' uh, education is greater than anything that I have seen. So we love to do that at the Richard Wright Public Charter School and hoping that Armstrong Williams will grace that school and to add more credibility to its presence and what it's trying to do. It on the graduating class of this past year, we had 99% graduations, uh, graduates, and we had over $20 million of scholarships and to the best schools in our nation. That was the dual efforts of parents, a board, and the staff at the Richard Wright Charter High School for Journalism and Media Arts. Well, uh, thank you for your kind invitation, and I accept. And we expect for you to come. I yes, accept. You do. Dr. Walter Milton, talk yeah. about the curriculum and the books in the classroom. Well, uh, before I do that, uh, I just want to give major accolades to uh, Dr. Dyson. Uh, Marco Clark is a good friend of mine. I've known him for, for many, many years. And I had an opportunity to do some training with the staff there uh, several years ago. So we, we definitely have pockets of success across this country um, dealing with that. But one of the things that I believe that we have to have a curricula that's alive and that's well and that's really geared um, to really prepare our children for globalization. And one of the things that if we're gonna have success, especially when it deals with um, black children and children of color, it, it is a, it's, it's important that we look at culturally responsive approaches to educate those young people, to really have a curricula that's um, going to engage them into the educational process, into the learning process, and that's going to 
uh, connect them so that they can be, um, like we talked about parents being intimately involved in that, but our students have to do that. And then we have to make sure that our teachers have the skill sets to disseminate um, the level of curricula that's 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 going on. Sometimes, you know, we, we teach young people that one apple plus two apples equals, one apple, excuse me, one apple plus one apple equals two apples. But we have to go a step further. We have to say that one apple plus one apple may be an apple orchard, uh, maybe um, an apple cider company, and it may be an applesauce company. And I think that we have to go beyond the foundational form of thinking, and we have to really increase and have a curricula that's alive and well that's going to help them to become critical and analytical thinkers. What, what, what do you suggest to improve um, the K-12 education? I think that it's imperative that we have administrators that are going to be forthright and honest to making sure that they're intimately involved in the educational process. Oftentimes, um, they see their role as managers, but I think that um, sometimes superintendents, principals, they have to get off the throne and come down into the valley and make that impact and lead the charge. Um, we go to different schools across the country and we provide um, remarkable professional development but administrators are not there. Sometimes they're on their phones or what have you, but I think that we have to start there and then we have to come all the way down. I think that we have to really help um, teachers in terms of professional development to, to really um, be immersed in culturally responsive approaches to educate um, children across this great nation. Corey, what do you think from your close-up experience has been the true impact of COVID on education? Yeah, it's been um, a disaster. I mean, there's no other word to describe. I mean, there's not a word that's extreme enough to describe mm -hmm. how bad COVID has been uh, for kids. I mean, a lot of kids have spent roughly two years out of school um, or having an erupted school, not being in school full time. Um, and so a lot of kids had to do um, remote learning, which obviously early in the pandemic, when we did not know how severe COVID was, you know, if it could affect children or not, it was necessary. I think everyone, the vast majority of people can agree now, we kept kids out of school far too long. It ultimately wasn't the right choice. Um, it was a choice made by ideological, driven by ideological uh, decision makers. And the result of that has been kids, if you wanna make it a racial thing, black and Latino kids have lost multiple years I mean, there was always an achievement gap that was pretty large, but now it's an achievement chasm. It's as wide as, again, Grand Canyon at this point. And we're, we're not seeing the effects of it now because these kids are still like in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. But at, when it comes time five, six years down the line when they're in high school applying for colleges, it's going to be insane uh, in terms of we, when we see the achievement gaps and how bad they truly are. Um, we have kids now that are in sixth grade operating at third grade level. Um, what I saw personally was, was that in many school districts, particularly low-income school districts, a lot of kids didn't necessarily have a stable internet connection at home. So how are those kids going to be able to log into Skype every day? Mm -hmm. um, their parents weren't necessarily checking on them, their homework to make sure that they did it. So you had a massive, massive um, truancy problem that happened during pandemic where certain kids weren't going to school for months. So they weren't getting any educational stimulation, um, not from the parents or not from school. And what you also saw with affluent school, well, affluent families, they knew that this whole thing was terrible for their kids, So, but they were affluent. So what they did is they hired private tutors. 
They created pod schools. So their kids were getting an education. Their kids were um, actually, you know, were able to keep, I mean, they lost something, some some progress, but they've mostly been able to rebound and some kids even gain. But when you talk about low-income kids, especially black Latino kids, they have been devastated by this pandemic. And I don't know if those gaps will ever close. I mean, given what we know about how terrible uh, gaps were and how those gaps formed during Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, I, I think that it's absolutely um, devastating for these kids. I, I really don't know what you can do. Um, but I, that's why I said you can't depend on the school. I think families have to take responsibility. And I know that some of my colleagues on the show have said, well, families can't do it. Look, there are families that come to this country from Asia who can't speak any English. I don't want to stereotype, but there are families that come from across the world, third world countries who can't speak any a lick of English, don't have any money or not educated themselves. Their kids graduate you near know, the top of their class in high school, go on to top colleges, end up doing well with themselves in life, doctors, lawyers, you name it. I think at the end of the day, there is a degree of personal responsibility that you have to take as a parent and push your kids in the right direction. If that means not buying an Xbox and instead buying them, you know, uh, math tutoring sessions, then so be it. And I think that those are decisions that we have to make as a community, as people who maybe come from low-income families or people of color, we have to make these decisions to invest in our own children and build that social and human capital and not necessarily rely on some magic bullet from the government, state governments or funding or whatever. We've been having this conversation for decades. If we continue to have this conversation about only the perfect school, only the perfect system, let's let's shuffle up the administrators. We'll be sitting on the same panel 10 years from now with the same issues. It's t- you got to you got to change things up and I think you have to like look outside of the system. And that's that's where I stand about this. And COVID has definitely devastated kids. But I think that what this means is that parents have to will their kids forward to succeed. I have a 16-year-old brother. During the pandemic, he didn't lose anything, but that's because I was on top of him and I was making sure that he actually did his schoolwork. I actually, you know, bought him a, I, I bought, I do a lot of, you know, this myself, but like I was tutoring him through the pandemic. Oh, well, I'm telling you, he froze. It's okay, that happens here. Dr. Milkman uh, and Marcia, Corey refused to allow his 16-year-old brother to fail. Mm-hmm. He willed him to success. And I think what Corey is saying to all of us, Corey, and you say it, you say it better than I can, all of us, all of us have that capacity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's what I was getting at. I think we all have the capacity to make sure that our own children, our own communities succeed. And I think, like I said before, if you're waiting on a system to, to save you, you're going to be waiting forever. We've been waiting since the 70s. We've been having these kind of same conversations for literally way before I was even born. Mm-hmm. So we have to change something. Um, one good story that I like to bring up is that during the Chinese Revolution, all of the rich and educated Chinese were actually, they were essentially had all of their wealth taken from them and then they were not allowed to be educated any further and their children were denied education. So it was the greatest equalizing event in, in human history. The poor peasants were given education in slots in, in universities. The, the children of rich people were, were, not, were denied university education so, and they were, they were stripped of their wealth. Now, when we look at the current day, the grandchildren of those who were 
uh, stripped of their opportunities during the Chinese Revolution are back on top in terms of wealth and educational attainment. And the poor peasants' uh, offspring have shifted back towards the bottom. And I think that that shows that communal ties, family ties, um, and human capital mean like 90% of what we're talking about here. It's about families and taking responsibility, mm -hmm. finding ways when the government isn't working for you, finding an alternative way. And I think that's what's important when we talk about our children succeeding. Absolutely. How do we deal with the mental health, Marcia? Well, it's a major crisis. I think a lot, you spoke about the impact of COVID. What we found out, especially with the students at the Richard Wright uh, Public Charter High School, they're so socialized to be engaged, especially on the internet and on their social media platforms, but also when they were isolated, they often were sequestered with parents who had mental health challenges themselves. They had no safe places outside of their home to go and play. They didn't have this age of innocence to have this sort of reverie, sort of uh, moments in which they could go back and think of the pleasant times. So they were covered in a whole lot of dark clouds. But I want to address the issue of what a beloved community can do. In the mid-70s, I was a teacher at the uh, Holy Angels School in the city of Chicago under Father George Clemens, who actually uh, was the first church to adopt a child. And when I was teaching, I noticed that the eighth grade students that I was teaching, they were way behind in their reading and their math. They were 14 and 16 years old. The nuns wanted to graduate them. And I went to Father Smith, who was the principal at the time, and said, we can't do this. These children are going to be graduated and to failure. So he allowed me to work with the Science Research Association. We developed a curriculum just for these children who are so-called at risk so that they would love their education while learning it at the same time. We we also had to take the school to a whole year around school. I would take them out by the lake so they could sit as scholars. Mostly they did all the ancient scholars, whether it's, you know, uh, the philosophers or Newton to sit under the tree by the lake to talk about nature so that I could give them a grasp of their, their not only their community, but of their cosmic citizenry and this wonderment that common sense gives us all as students. And so uh, the students are now one is the president of Northeastern Illinois University, Armstrong. The other owns radio stations. Some have become elected officials in the city of Chicago, and I still stay in touch with them. And the parents who hated me at the time have now come, and we are friends. I'm not afraid to go back to the south side of Chicago because it was a beloved community. And that wasn't because of me only. It was a school that was willing to let me do it as a young woman in my early 20s to experiment with a community that I loved. And it was also the willingness of the parents who knew that they had a deficit but whose lives were also uh, improved by this great experiment called education with the uh, idea of education for the good of the community. You know, Dr. Milton, what she's saying and, and alluding to is the power that teachers have. Yes. The, the power that teachers have to transform a student, no matter what their challenges may be. How do we get teachers not only back to teaching, but treat them and pay them like they're CEOs and the most important people on the planet. I agree with you 100% because uh, I wouldn't be sitting here today if it had had a teacher had not impacted my life. And her name is Cassandra Frierson. And she's uh, from South Carolina. Uh, she came to Rochester, New York, where I grew up. And she was my science teacher. And 
upon my first moment of experiencing her, she changed my life. When she said that there's no excuses, and even if there are reasons, you're not going to allow them to stop you from being successful because it's in your DNA. You have a gene that no one else has. No other nation has this gene but us. It's called the best gene. And it's my expectation that you're going to tap into that best gene in the best way to make an impact in your life forever from, from this day forth. And that stayed with me. That just resonated with my soul. And I believe that teaching is the most sacred position um, that we can offer in this great country. And I think that we have to support teachers. We have to build them up, not tear them down. And we have to really go outside the box and find people that are credible. I'm not talking about from a certification standpoint, but people that really care and they see themselves through the students that they serve every day. And I think that when we have those types of approaches, we increase the, um, the probability of getting the best people in front of our children because they have the tool to, to make that impact. You know, a teacher can stand in between the success of a child or the failure of a child. And that is a that is a very, very good, uh, a, a tall order, if you will, but it's also a great position to be in to make that that long life impact. And we have great teachers out here. And unfortunately, we have some of them that see it as a job and this can't be seen as a job. It can't be seen as a career. Um, it has to be a devotion. It really does. And when you when you teach, you care, and you're willing against to go, go, go against the grain of your own comfort zone to make that deep and lasting impact. So I think that we need to put more resources into recruiting people that are not only highly efficient and, and understand their content area um, from an expertise standpoint, but culminated with caring and seeing this as their life work. Corey, um, how do you balance out the violence and the disrespect and the unruliness that sometimes happens in the classroom? I mean, that's an incredibly difficult topic. And quite frankly, that's part of the reason why you have so much turnover within schools. So like I went to an inner city high school when I was a little kid um, up until like roughly seventh grade. And I remember in one year I had four different teachers and they would all last, many of them were, you know, white and perky and came from, you know, very, um, you know, they were there on some type of special program to send them to inner city schools and they were very excited to do that work, but they all got burnt out from the disrespect, students not doing any homework, students yelling, you know, cursing the teacher out, interrupting the class. And so teachers quit and quite frankly, I can't blame them because who wants to put up with that level of disrespect? Um, you're not getting paid enough to do that. And so I don't really have an, an answer to that. I don't think every inner city school is like that. And I do think the bulk of our students do truly care about getting you know, a decent education and wanting to do well. Um, but I think that ultimately a lot of these issues are home issues. You know, If a kid is being disrespectful in the classroom, that might just be because their parents are not you know, giving them any consequences. I guarantee you, for a lot of these kids, if, you know, it's probably not politically correct to say, but their parents were engaging in some sort of corporal punishment at home uh, for this behavior, they wouldn't be, you know, disrespecting the teachers. So yeah. I do think that you, you have to engage the parents. If a kid is being disrespectful, you know, go to the parents and say, this is what's happening. 
and make sure that the parents are involved or informed of their kids' behavior. Um, and if it becomes too big of an issue, maybe that kid is better off in some sort of alternative environment that is better for handling educational issues. We can't expect teachers to be therapists, right? Or, or nightclub bouncers. So it's, it's a really difficult issue. But for me, I think that we need to save education for the bulk of kids who are trying their best to be educated. We can't allow teachers to have 90% of their time preoccupied by kids who want to be class clowns and, and be wildly disrespectful. So that's just my stance on it. You know, um, Dr. Milton and Dr. Dyson, it is obvious that the intellectual gap in education happens before the kid ever enters the classroom. What happens in that home is more important than anything else. What happens in that home before the kid goes to school, when the kid comes back home from school, and how they spend that time in that home before they return the next day is just as critical as being in the classroom. I must tell you, I've, we've had many discussions on crisis in the classroom, crisis in education, but I must tell you that um, Nathan and um, Dr. Milton and Marcia and all have contributed greatly to this conversation today. And Corey, what you've said has just been outstanding. I appreciate this, because you know what? This gives me hope and comfort that if parents want this to change, they must be that change. Thank mm. you so much for joining us for this edition of Crisis in the Classroom, Crisis in Education, but there's hope. And where there's hope, you will find progress. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.